0: Hey everyone, this is Chad and this is a different episode of the Mission Daily because my friend Brittany reached out and asked if I wanted to be interviewed for her podcast. It's called Beyond Influential. She's awesome. The podcast is great. And I said yes. So we recorded an interview about how I got started, a bunch of backstories about my own life and pursuits and thoughts that I haven't really shared publicly before. So to get the most out of the interview that follows, here's some quick extra housekeeping and context about it. So at the mission, we recently hired our first director of partnerships and Ben, Ben Maida came on as our director of partnerships, but he's also doing a bunch of general counsel. So attorney type stuff, legal stuff, HR stuff, and the list goes on. And he's an attorney by training with a background in corporate and technology law. So up until recently, I haven't had too much working experience with attorneys. And as I get to know Ben more and the folks that we have worked with previously at Coolly and places like that, my mindset about the field of law continues to expand and it's way more important than most people think. So it's easy to make attorney jokes and they're funny. I love them just as much as everyone else. But it turns out we need attorneys perhaps more than we might think. Blockchain's exciting. Bitcoin's great. But ultimately, smart contracts are not going to replace attorneys. We're still going to need to apply human creativity to these new systems we're developing. And after seeing some of Ben's work and just realizing, you know, knowing a little bit myself about how difficult it is to get into a top law school, how torturous the LSAT and a lot of what law school is in general, in terms of like mental torture, I have a newfound respect for this. And I bring that up because the person that is asking the questions in this interview, Brittany, is an attorney by training. So she did her undergraduate degree at UCLA then she went on to get her law degree at Georgetown Law. So if you're familiar with Georgetown Law, here's a quick summary. It's one of the top 15 law schools in the nation. You probably need something like 3.8 GPA maybe to get in, and you're going to need, I'm guessing, 170 or more on your LSAT. So in other words, it's not easy. It takes an enormous amount of intelligence to get in. So Brittany graduated from Georgetown. She's not a practicing attorney though. After school, she joined Vayner Media. So many of you might be familiar with Vayner, Gary Vee's agency. And at Vayner, Brittany helped Gary Vee build his brand team and helped build Vayner talent. Now, the agency that she runs, that she's founded, works with companies and individuals to help them build their personal brands online. Brittany is also the host of the Beyond Influential podcast. And you can actually find that on our microsites that we launched bestpodcast.com and podcast.ai. So if you haven't checked those out yet, those are two fun experiments that we're going to be expanding in the future to help make curation, discovery and some other things that we're not going to talk about yet available for podcasts. So before we jump into this interview, got to give a big shout out to our sponsor Twilio. Twilio has a flash sale going on right now. Today was the first day and today is the last day of the sale. So if you want to meet up with the mission team at this year's Twilio Signal conference, we would love to see you there. Make sure you get your ticket. And when you do, use the code MISSION10 to get 50% off the sales price. So not 500 bucks. It's only $250. It's a great deal. The conference is October 17th and the 18th in San Francisco. And if you get your ticket, we'll see you there. And now, without further ado, on to the interview I just did with Brittany. Whenever I feel like jealousy or envious when I'm trying to gain influence or looking at another's influence, it's usually a sign that like I'm not being... Authentic to myself.
1: This is Beyond Influential influential. with Brittany Crystal. Join Brittany as she chats with today's thought leaders about the power of influence, how it's developed, and how they get us to consume both on and offline. Here's your host, Brittany Crystal. Hey everyone, and thank you for listening to this week's episode of Beyond Influential. If you're new to the show, I'm your host, Brittany Crystal. I'm a personal branding and social growth expert. I've worked with names like Gary Vaynerchuk, Tom Billiu, and Marie Forleo on their personal brands. I currently work with business and creative thought leaders, executives, and influencers to grow their industry influence online in order to help them to achieve their professional and personal goals. I'm also a non-practicing lawyer. Before we get started with today's episode, for those who don't know, I've been really hot on building brand on LinkedIn for pretty much every industry. And if you haven't been on LinkedIn in a while, or if you just haven't updated your profile, I created a free checklist to make sure you're up to date and answering the right questions with your LinkedIn bio. You can get it at brittanycrystal.com LinkedIn. So this week, my interview is with Chad Grills. Chad is a U.S. Army veteran, writer, and CEO of The Mission, a media company that publishes stories, videos, podcasts, and a daily newsletter designed to accelerate learning. The mission creates branded podcasts and sponsorships for world-class companies like Salesforce, Twilio, and Katerra. And the mission is also the largest active publication on the platform Medium. So for context, one of my roles on Gary Vaynerchuk's personal brand team was helping get Gary's content syndicated. So I first got connected to Chad in 2016 when he reached out to try to get Gary's content on the mission. And I've been a consumer of the mission's content since and sometimes contributor. And just so you know in advance, this is not an episode dedicated to the nitty-gritty tactics of growing on Medium. If you want to hear more about specific medium growth strategies, you should check out episode 23 of the podcast, where I talk with Tom Kugler about all of the specifics of growth. So I'll link that in the show notes. And I just really love this interview with Chad. Sometimes when you watch someone who looks like they're attaining success quickly, we really don't think about the years of relevant experience they had beforehand. So I thought the most valuable use of my time with him would be digging into his story and talking through how he is applying those learnings to grow the mission into a true media machine. I'm really excited to see what the mission is doing in the branded podcast space and I expect to be hearing a lot more from them soon. So please enjoy my interview with the insightful Chad Wells. I'm so happy to have you. How are you? Thank Wells.
0: I'm great. How are you doing, Brittany?
1: Good. So to just start off, what do you tell people you do?
0: Uh, I work in media or I'm uh, a writer. Uh, that's the, that usually gets the job done.
1: So what exactly is the mission for people who don't Who don't know? Because a media company is such a broad term now.
0: It really is. So we're building a network of podcasts and shows. And we like to think that each show is the opposite of traditional media. So traditional media is designed to agitate people, put them in a state of fear, uncertainty, or doubt, and then sell them something, which, hey, I don't uh, knock that business model. But I do know that we want to create something that's different. And so each of our shows and podcasts are designed to improve the life of the listener, of the reader, of the viewer. So we take it really seriously that you know if people are going to give us their attention, it's our duty to make their life a little bit better each day. And we definitely don't want to be a contributing factor to any type of uncertainty or doubt. We just want to inspire or educate wherever we can.
1: Well, just before we get into all of the details of the mission and kind of what you're building, I do want to take people back into your background and can you explain how you even, why you even went into the army and kind of what you were doing <laughs> before the mission?
0: Yeah, definitely. I uh, I would love to talk about that. So that is where I think the real insights and challenges and trials all were because nowadays I'm blessed and very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing and I don't have any complaints, super lucky, but it wasn't always the case. And so I started thinking about the military from a very young age, not from a standpoint of, oh, I'm angry and I want to you know, hurt people or something like that. No, far from it. I just became really interested after 9-11 that the dialogue seemed to only involve two arguments, really. The two arguments were that we should be over there or we shouldn't be over there. And the correct answer in my mind was, no, we should fix the situation and get out of there as quickly as possible because we already started it. So I didn't find a lot of other people that were interested in this and the people around me in high school and college they weren't thinking like this and i just started to explore the idea of you know was i really challenging myself because college wasn't a challenge high school was very boring i was not a good student so 2 years into college i learned about the military and then i mapped out the quickest journey from where i was at to go to iraq i found it <laughs> It wasn't too difficult to find. And uh, (laughs) my school's ROTC program, my unit that I was a part of deployed to Iraq. And so I had two choices. I could continue and contract into the ROTC program, which would make me exempt from a deployment, or I could deploy as an enlisted soldier with my unit. And I, I chose the latter there. And it made all the difference, as a wise man once said. So I was in Iraq from 2007 to 2008. And it was a tremendous experience, and it informed everything that I'm doing now in terms of trying to move the dialogue, move the debate, and make the world a more voluntary place. So,
1: so where did you grow up? Where were you in college?
0: So I grew up in a small town in western Maryland called Boonesboro. It was a very small town with, I think my graduating class was probably 250 people. Again, I wasn't really paying attention to any uh, traditional school stuff. I went to another small college. So first I went to a community college, then I went to Salisbury University on the Eastern Shore of Maryland. And I was never really into school, not, uh, not a fan at all. It's just something I was doing to appease everyone around me. And at yeah, two years in, I just wanted something more.
1: Were you into writing at the time? Did you have a dream job?
0: Yeah, so I was always passionate about creating and doing things and telling stories. And my earliest memories actually... Involved being reprimanded for writing stories in kindergarten and drawing out the illustrations. And I just remember a teacher, basically a kindergarten teacher, giving me an incredibly hard time about doing that. And I just thought, wow, these people are crazy. And as I got older, I just realized the full extent to which they hated the idea that somebody would create something new. And so I was kind of like on the defense for many, many years in school where I wanted to write stories, I wanted to tell them but I knew that it was something that adults and those around me didn't think was like a viable path. They thought it was a distraction, but I always kept that interest.
1: Do people think you were crazy for voluntarily going to Iraq? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So one of my favorite comments that I would hear just through the grapevine about what other adults and parents who I would be like friends with their kids would say. And one of the most popular lines that I just get a kick out of was, oh, that's so sad that he couldn't find anything else like, or, oh, we thought Chad was smart and things like that. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, you know, if you want to enjoy the benefits of an empire or a nation state, whatever you want to call the United States, and if you want it to become better, it's really important to have a strong defense. And that for better or worse involves the military, which I'm a huge supporter of. And it was challenging hearing those things, but you know, when somebody else is honest and tells you what they really think, it's a blessing because that opened my eyes up to the fact that not only were people hostile to some of my like ideas and ambitions, but they were downright callous. And to be really blunt, I discovered for better or worse that there were a lot of adults who viewed the military as something just for stupid people. And they were like, you know, completely fine with the idea that that existed, but they would never, ever want their kids to go into it. And it was just really... A mindset of complete apathy nihilism that I just reacted strongly against. And I'm a very big believer that we need to be proactive and have a definitely optimistic idea about the future and then create it and do the hard work necessary to make it happen. So, man, I just wouldn't trade these experiences for anything because I got to hear what people around me really thought, which is priceless.
1: I think that's super interesting because you're you're the first person I've spoken to on the show who's been in the military. But aside from that, I really don't know that many people from my world in general who have been in the military. And of course, you want the smartest people possible working there. But at sure. the same time, I do think that the military now has a reputation for, it's almost like a boot camp for people who didn't fit in anywhere else. So out of curiosity, were the other people in your class, were those people who weren't good students, were those people who had disciplinary issues that just ended up there.
0: Definitely. So it's really interesting because it's difficult to talk online about big populations of people without breaking down the nuance. That's why yep. I love long-form discussions like this where if you look at the entire body of people that joined the military, there were certain certainly a percentage of them that were dangerous where I was keeping an eye on them <laughs> and I wasn't quite sure I wanted to serve with them and I was, you know, keeping myself aware of how to prevent fratricide and things like that because there's some dangerous folks that join the military for the wrong reasons. But on the other end of the spectrum, what I found was there are some larger-than-life heroes and just amazing people that are literally the philosophers and soldiers that all the greatest minds throughout history knew, you know, these, these were the types of people best suited to be in the military and lead defense and lead the country in times of war or struggle. And so I found the best people in the world, and I also found some of the worst and then there were lots of people that were just trying to figure it out there. They still believed in the idea that America was worth protecting and defending. And so it was this really eclectic group of people that goes much, much deeper than any type of you know recruiting slogan could paint or any type of stereotype could characterize.
1: So what kind of training do you get before they actually deploy you? And then what did you actually take away from the experience?
0: Yeah, so I did basic training, which is just what everyone goes through in the army. Then I did AIT, which in my case was infantry school at Fort Benning. It's kind of like your specialized training. From there, I went to my unit and we went pretty much immediately to a mobilization station, which at the time was Fort Dix, New Jersey. We trained for about three months there. And then we went home for maybe I think three or four days and then went to Iraq for a year.
1: So after you're deployed, do you know if you're actually going into real combat? Like, how does that work where they decide who gets to do what when you get there?
0: Sure. So in most cases, you're not going to know exactly where you're going for operational security and a bunch of other reasons. And another misconception is that Iraq was a war. Iraq definitely wasn't a war. It, It was for certain units stationed in certain areas. But overall, it was almost an impossible task for our military where they were asked to fulfill a peacekeeping function. They were asked to you know, educate people in democracy and how to build a constitutional republic like we have. And they also had to fix a crumbling infrastructure and just basically all of the worst problems imaginable, the military was tasked with solving all of them without proper training, equipment, finances, anything like that. And a lot of that was under normal conditions where there were plenty of towns, especially where I was at in Northern Iraq that were safe but there was also a risk of roadside bombs, ambushes, and that was a real threat all the time that you're, you're dealing with. So while a lot of it wasn't direct contact and not, you know, day in, day out firefights, things like that, it's still not a safe place. And in a lot of cases, you know, folks I serve with, you know, luckily everyone in our unit made it back okay. But it's not all out war, but not all out peace either.
1: This might be a dumb question, but can you leave at any point?
0: So certain, the answer is no, not legally, but there there are plenty of people who decide to leave and break their contract in one way or another. So there certainly are a small minority of people who decide for whatever reason that's going on at home. And I'm not judging them because there were horrendous things that happened to soldiers in terms of their wife or their spouse leading them or basically antagonizing them throughout the entire deployment advertising that they're cheating on them. Just just all kinds of like, you can't imagine it until you're actually you know across from somebody who's going through it. And there are a lot of folks that deal with just huge challenges and then have to leave. So a lot of people, one guy had, I think, five kids and there were some family challenges and then he had to go home and then other people would get hurt or injured. And then when we got home, there's a whole collection of folks that realize, okay, this is not for me and I'm going to you know, explore the cannabis exit. So there's a lot of things like that. And just to be clear, I, I didn't, I feel it's really important to, if you say you're going to do something, if you sign a contract at a certain point, you have to start honoring those contracts. So I had a six year commitment. I honored it, served honorably, did some cool stuff, got awards, but then I exited when my time was done.
1: So when your time was done, did you know what you wanted to be doing? Did you have a plan and what ended up happening?
0: Sure. So I knew I wanted to write and tell stories, but I also knew I wanted to be an inventor. So that's the best line to get in. If you're going to tell people you're going to be a writer, that's step one to get laughed at. And then you can layer on, I want to be an inventor. And uh, that's the icing on the cake. So I, I did that and I started designing some things, patented some things. And I started to teach myself about how to license those ideas and patents to existing companies. And I was exploring how to build some of those things. I launched a variety of apps. The first ones were entertainment apps. And I was generally trying a whole portfolio of things. And I was actively pursuing all of them. I think my uh, weakness at the time was I was looking for validation from friends, family, folks like that. And I wasn't just going all in on different things when they started to work. But the great thing about that portfolio approach of trying different things was I had all this information, the information I was getting from the market and people I was talking to was just coming in nonstop. And I quickly realized that if I ever wanted to create any of my ideas, I would need a really successful company that was making money, that was attracting great talent. And then from that place, I could incubate new ideas and get things out into the world. But
1: Were you doing this from, you weren't, you didn't move back to Maryland, right? Or you did? I did. Yeah. So
0: my wife, who was then my girlfriend is amazing. And when we first met back in 2009, we met under the pretense of, hey, my unit said I might be getting redeployed in a month. And so our entire first year of our relationship was predicated on, I might have to leave next month. And then I got pushed back again and again and again. So not the ideal circumstance to start a relationship. And then at the end of that uncertainty, we got orders to deploy to Egypt. So I had another deployment after Iraq. And when Steph was, you know, just incredibly supportive after that, and I got home, I asked her to marry me and we moved to DC because yeah, she was amazing. And so we lived right outside of DC in Potomac for two years.
1: Oh, that's awesome. So how are you funding all of these things then? Does, did the army help at all with that?
0: Yeah. So I had a substantial savings that I built up. I never really spent lavishly on uh, things. I have invested pretty aggressively in my own projects. And that was something where I had saved up the money. I'd made some good investments, some bad investments. I was trying to trade stocks and trade public equities, which again, I would not recommend unless you're, you know, you understand machine learning and have a team of about 12 really world-class engineers. So I lost some money there, made a little bit of money, and I was self-funding out of everything at this point. It was not cheap, but I also had a good idea of how much I was learning. And my rate of learning was just through the roof. And so occasionally I would take on like consulting work or something like that. And then a a couple of the apps and products I built started to make a little bit of money, but not enough to live on. So yeah, I was generally just burning money, but I knew it was gonna lead to some more good.
1: So then which were your most successful apps and which were a few inventions or things that you're like, oh my God, why did I even do that?
0: (laughs) Sure. Um, So the first entertainment app I created, Stephanie helped me with it. It was out for, I think, two weeks and we got a cease and desist letter. I had reached out to a larger company and I said, hey, we're getting a decent amount of downloads and our conversion from free to paid is pretty high. I think that your existing IP is really awesome. And if you want to buy the source code and buy this app, like here's how much I think you could make. And I didn't get a response. I just got a letter from their attorney. Well, I did get a response (laughs) uh, that said, stop doing this immediately, take down the app. And that was a great lesson, but I was hooked after that point when I realized that there were real stakes and there were very aggressive, larger companies out there and that it was important to learn everything I could. And I realized how little I knew.
1: And just for context for people, what was your wife doing at the time? Because I, I mean, I know that this world is so, you need the people (laughs) in your close circle to be extremely supportive. And it seems like you had that support from her. I did.
0: Yeah, Stephanie was incredibly supportive throughout the entire process. And at the same time, though, it was a situation where you always have to be selling. If you have an idea, you have to figure out how to communicate and articulate it and present the rationale for why something makes sense to do, why it makes sense to invest this much money into something. So Steph was working at the time at a large finance company in DC. And so she's very, very prudent. She is an excellent investor in her own right, but she is very conservative with her investments. So she was the one who was providing the much needed guidance and adult observation for my crazy like pursuits and everything. And it worked out really well because two of our educational apps that we did after that did very well. Both of them were featured by Apple. It wasn't like a homepage app store feature, but it was still a feature in the what's hot section of the education categories. And I think they both did somewhere like 120, 150,000 downloads somewhere around there. And it just opened my eyes to what was possible with a couple thousand dollars, basically. Maybe like $12,000. And that was a game changer for me, seeing the success of those. And at the time in DC, there were actually some local investors that realized, oh, wow, this type of traction for somebody who's essentially by himself working with a contractor. So I was designing the screens, doing everything. They were impressed and they offered money. And I just looked at that and I thought, I don't want to be doing this for the next three to four years. I, I was flattered that they offered money but I didn't want to necessarily take advice from them. Uh, I didn't respect them to the level I should have to take money from somebody. So I said no and just went back to experimenting.
1: So- this is all awesome context. And I really, I, you know, I wrote this in the email to you yesterday. I wanted to make sure that people heard your lead up to the mission because it's so <laughs> easy to look and be like, oh, hey, this guy got into a platform, started a medium publication when it was a little early, got lucky. <laughs> but you had all of this lead up to it. And we're going to talk about I want to ask you about your education apps. Because it seems like the mission was built on the idea of education. You weren't a good student. You just built these education apps. Like These are common themes that have been going on for years before you started this publication. So what was your interest in education? And then if you could talk a little bit about how you found Medium.
0: Yeah. So my interest in education started very early. So for the first three years in my elementary school, My school had a gifted and talented program and the teacher there was incredible. And that was, in my mind, everything that school should be. We were out in the real world. We were experimenting. She was having us do brown bag lunches with like private investigators and like all kinds of people with different jobs would come to our little class and talk to us. That was thrilling. When that ended, I kind of was faced with more of the reality of what education in the public school system is sometimes in very small schools. And it wasn't very pretty. And so I think that subconsciously early on, I was always thinking about what is a better way to do things. And after seeing firsthand what was happening in Iraq and some of the problems that are going on around the world, I realized that education was the way to solve them. As I started to explore education more, I realized that it wasn't necessarily traditional education that could move the needle, but it was media. And that media was something that is very, very misunderstood and not appropriately valued. And that by pursuing media and going in that direction, not only could I get my ideas out there, but I could actually change things for the better.
1: So when did you actually find Medium and had you been writing on a blog before Medium or had you been trying to write a book or anything?
0: Yeah. So I found Medium, I think, so when I left the military, let's see, it was 2012. And shortly after I did some apps, did some things like that. I think two years later, I wrote my first book and I put it out onto Kickstarter and it was called uh, Veterans Rebuild America it's not associated with maga or anything no, yeah nothing, i'm not not saying that i was actually first to the party in i think a more interesting way but anyways so i had that out there the kickstarter did well and i got an email from an acquiring editor at simon and schuster and she started exploring you know optioning this book to simon and schuster as i got details about it i realized it was the worst deal of all time and i could never make any money as a writer trying to write traditional books or working with a traditional publisher and that got me thinking about how do I build a full stack media company? So a media company that can do everything I'm thinking of, that can publish books, that can do fiction, nonfiction. And that led me to find Medium. And when I found Medium, I realized, okay, this is a great place to test my ideas, test my writing, and I can start to build this brand. And it wasn't, you know, it didn't start out as the mission. It was a horrible name, Life Learning. That was the, the first <laughs> publication I started. But it was a place where I could meet other writers, curate writing, and then generally just learn about the media space.
1: So how did that evolve? How quickly were you on Medium that you started actually gaining traction and getting attention for your pieces?
0: I don't think I got any sort of interest or traction for maybe like the first year or more. It was generally like, you know, no type of response. And slowly over time, you know, it really wasn't until... Two years ago, maybe that life learning started to do well, and then trying to think I think late late last year, I believe I rebranded things to the mission, yeah, hazy on times, but then I had a brand, and then the mission started to do better and better. I was able to sell some sponsorships and then reinvest that money into you know content, keeping the lights on for myself, so starting to pay my own bills and not you know earning through savings, and just speed up my learning, so
1: when you were writing, were you thinking? I mean, in the upfront, were you thinking about a particular audience? Did you have a particular demo in mind?
0: You know what? I didn't at all. I just knew that if I was finding this stuff interesting, that there was going to be at least a couple people out there that found things interesting. I was generally just trying to curate any interesting writing that was out there and then republish it in the mission. So if I found something that was I felt undervalued, or if I found a writer on Medium that I thought should get more attention, I would just reach out to them and, you know, publish it in the mission or feature it in our newsletter, things like that. And that just started to, over time, build a following, start to build a relationship with those writers and things like that.
1: So when did you start reaching out to to big names? I know in 2016, that was when you reached out to Gary. I know James Altucher regularly contributes. Did that just kind of start snowballing at a certain point?
0: Yeah, I think, let's see, the first, the first time my paradigm about how it was possible to get in contact with anyone changed was at Fort Benning in infantry school. And our drill sergeants came in and did the usual routine of like, you know, trying to ruffle everybody up, scare people, flip beds, stuff like that. And they had told us that there was a trash picking up detail and several of us were selected for this trash picking up detail. And what I noticed about all the people that were selected was we were all the best, People in the platoon. So I thought, okay, this is just some like psychological game they're playing to just irritate us. And as we went to this trash picking up detail, I realized that it wasn't that at all. And we actually pulled up in front of Air Force One on a tarmac, had Secret Service pat us down and everything. And I realized that we were there to meet the president. He wanted to meet select recruits from Fort Benning Infantry School. And so while we were standing on the tarmac and the president is walking by, shaking everyone's hand. I just noticed that nobody else was talking to him. So when he got to me, I struck up a conversation and that completely altered my worldview of what was possible in striking up a dialogue because the president was receptive and we had a great conversation. This was W uh, back in the day. It's not like we got really deep or anything or uh, became best buds, but still it was way more than what anyone else was willing to say or do. So from there, I just started to learn that wait a minute, I can just strike up conversations with anyone. And the worst that's going to happen is they say no, or don't respond. And that really gave me a lot of courage to start reaching out, cold emailing people, cold emailing Gary, once our publication got to a certain size, who connected me with you and you were able to make it happen. Thank you. And Thank you. uh, Yeah, of course. And yeah, I've just been practicing that. And because it's definitely an art, right? Of reaching out in like the right way at the right time, getting the subject line right, and that the ask and the offer. And plus it's really fun, so for anyone that hasn't tried that, I would definitely recommend doing it. it's a great way to get out of your comfort zone and meet really exciting people
1: and I like that you said it's an art form getting the ask and the offer right because at the time when you reached out, you know that was that was a win for Gary, like people look at Gary now, and I had a I had a role on the team at a certain point where it was, I was reaching out to small newspapers in Maryland and Texas and whoever to see if they'll write about him and if I could syndicate their content. So the sure, fact that you had sure. any kind of audience, it's like, okay, let's play around with this. Let's test and learn. You know, it's different than reaching out to him now. How do you think about, because I think people need to hear a little bit more about how to actually assess value. What was the key <laughs> for you to getting people to agree to syndicate with you before you were huge?
0: Conveying the benefit in the subject line to the person. Mm -hmm. So if you can convey the benefit to that person very quickly in the subject line, that's step one. And then step two is making sure that in the first line of the email, you continue to generate interest. And then after that, try to catalyze some desire. So basically tell them like the good things that might happen if they say yes, or if they agree to explore the idea and then make it really simple for them to take action at the end. So end with a question, end with the next step that you want. And the simple format I always use is just ADA. It's an old copywriting and advertising format, but it works great for cold emails, reach outs, even work emails. If you're trying to send shorter emails, the whole attention, interest, desire, action format is a foolproof way to... It's kind of like a format that you can use that makes it very easy and takes the mental bandwidth out of the equation. And just easier to send emails that way.
1: That's an awesome tip. Oh, thanks. So at what point, I know there was a point when I would reach out to you where I think you had, I don't know if you started hiring staff writers or you were building it into a, into a business. And I think you, I don't even know, do you still vet people? Are you still accepting submissions? How is the machine on Medium working at this point?
0: Yeah, so we, we just experimented with a new editor and that didn't work out well. So we went back to our old editor So we have an editor who reviews submissions and we republish a lot of things. So if there's great writing, we republish for free. We don't pay for that because at this point we reach millions of people each month and the names of people who read us and their experience and everything is so valuable that if you are interested in publishing, it's a great place to be seen and read by some of the smartest and most affluent people in the world. But generally just trying to build a team around that as we start to expand out into podcast, which is our big focus right now.
1: So what content does perform the best though, as far as, as written?
0: I think that anything that is long form, first of all, it does really well. And that anything where the person is trying to solve a real pain point or challenge for the reader that does well. And that anything that is a story always will do well. So that sounds simple, but it's actually pretty hard to do in practice And good writing takes many passes, not just editorial passes, but proofreading passes and, you know, getting many different people to read it and and vet it and provide ideas and counterpoints. So good writing takes a really long time. I think that a lot of people just aren't willing to make that investment, which is fine, but you have to invest the appropriate amount of time to get any type of return on your writing.
1: For the mission's Medium publication, what's your demo breakdown look like?
0: Yeah, so the breakdown of readership is last I checked it was about 55% male, 45% female. Mm-hmm. And that's something where the inbound submissions are all much, much heavily indexed towards males. So like men will apply to write for us all day long. There are very few women who apply to write for us. So that's something we're always, a lot of our team members are women and we, we make it a point to hire them. So if you know, any women writers always like, feel free to re- refer them to us. We'd love to get them onboarded and published. As quickly as possible, but yeah, that's basically our demo. So,
1: so has Medium been super supportive? I know they have some kind of paywall type things going up now, but have they been supportive of of you guys, you know, taking sponsorships and treating it like it's your website versus you having your own blog?
0: Yeah, so we haven't been too in touch with them or working too closely until recently. Mm. And Medium had a new head of partnerships that joined, so we're talking with them and. Generally, they've been really open and receptive to us experimenting and using the platform, and they've been very supportive in that regard. And I'm really optimistic about the new head of partnerships, and we're talking about some things right now, and hopefully we can, yeah, formalize it soon.
1: Okay, so how did you build out that business, like to what it is now? What does your team look like, and when did the podcast start and the daily newsletter?
0: So that the daily newsletter started a little over a year ago, I think maybe before then we were sending a pretty infrequent newsletter before that. And as I started to build a team, you know, we started with an editor. Then we added my so my wife Stephanie has been helping us. Roles and titles are really difficult at an early stage company because generally we all do a bit of everything. But now the team's really growing. We're hiring you know, we're hiring for a number of different roles. We're having a lot of people apply for producer roles on podcasts. We're still looking for another editor in chief. We're looking for podcast editor and audio engineer. So that's really exciting. But the team right now is four full-time employees, four contractors, and we just made two offers. So full-time offers to people.
1: And so you're making content also for brands or are you selling advertising space or what's the model?
0: We are. So we're not interested in selling advertising inventory. That's something that is not a sustainable long-term business model in the media space. It might work in niche circumstances, but if you have larger ambitions to build a platform or really do any large-scale media projects, like develop your own originals or TV series or anything like that, or movies, traditional advertising isn't going to do it. So we're exploring some branded content. Things. That's basically where we focus. And what we do is develop branded podcasts that are custom to different sponsors. And so we partner with some of the best companies in the world, like Salesforce, Twilio, Katera. Katera is an up and coming construction company. They've raised, I think, $1.1 billion from SoftBank Vision Fund and others. And our specialty is nerdy research and then distilling that into cool stories. So I'm like, I'm looking at my desk right now. Like, this is the The book I have on my desk, it's a textbook. It's about living machines. It's about biomimetic design. Yeah, it's not something that's like a lot of people are excited about, but I'm excited about it. So we generally look for really complicated enterprise products and companies and figure out how to tell their story on podcasts.
1: So you like telling the story on podcasts more than writing at this point for for brands?
0: So podcasts are great for a number of different reasons. I like the distribution and... Intimacy of the format, but it all starts with good writing. So if you're going to outline a script and get that ready, it requires good writing and patience and everything like that to develop the idea for the show, for the episode, or for the season. So writing is very, very important. I just think that the amount of people that actually want to read the writing, the show notes, or even the written version of some historical fiction things we've done, that's a very small audience. Whereas the audience for podcasts is just so large. Because podcasts in a lot of ways are augmented reality that actually works right now. And you can do things, you can go about your day, you can get things done and learn or be taught by some of the best minds in the world. So that type of utility is so important.
1: So you're still in startup mode. So you're kind of touching everything, you're doing everything, you're heavily involved in the creative. I know usually as people scale you know, the CEO ends up stepping off of creative is staying actively involved in the storytelling process, something you want to make sure to keep.
0: Always. So in the mornings, I'm always doing something creative and there are rare cases where there's like a fire that happens or something, a proverbial <laughs> fire that I have to put out and that's fine. But generally I always want to keep my creative muscle sharp because I'm not going to be able to attract, recruit and retain the best creatives in the world unless they respect me for what I'm putting out on a daily basis, that's resonating with people, It's connecting with people. So we have a daily podcast called The Mission Daily. Big, uh, big surprise on the brand there. <laughs> it shocked me how quickly it's really resonated with people and started to grow, which is very exciting. But that's our daily place where I can be creative, bring on guests that I'd like to talk to and connect with. And I'm writing a lot. I'm developing Usually I'll weigh in on the high level concept for a lot of our podcasts, and then our team will help fill in the gaps and the details and everything like that. And I want to be involved in the creative and understand what's going on on many aspects of the business. Not all of them, but creative is really important.
1: When it comes to doing the daily podcast, do you batch them ahead of time or what's your content creation process? Because it seems like you're creating a shit ton of content and then on top (laughs) of it, you have to run the business.
0: (laughs) We are. And it's chaotic, but out of chaos comes order. If you're really thinking hard about how to make that happen, you can always figure out how to create order out of chaos. And I like creating in in perfect circumstances because I've never found perfect (laughs) circumstances to create. So it's a bit all over the place. Sometimes we'll batch, sometimes we'll get the podcast episodes done just in time. And the nice thing is right now, we recently hired a really talented head of partnerships who was formerly at Cooley, which is a big law firm. And then he was general counsel at a post series D technology company. So a very large technology company, and he's an attorney by training, but what he brings to the team is a lot of rigorous systems type thinking and mindsets to help us build processes around all of the creation. And then Steph, my wife is our COO and she's helping now, we just had a son four months ago now. Congrats. Thanks. So now that we're both starting to get a little bit of sleep, she can help pin down the operations, which she's doing. And we're getting a lot more predictability into the business, which is important because chaos is fine. And out of that can come creativity, but too much of that will cause you to collapse and ruin the business. So
1: So who helps ideate all the different types of things you'll be putting on the podcast? Is it Are you just the final decision maker or do you allow the team to kind of come up with it and
0: and roll? I'm I'm always looking for the best ideas. So ideas will come from all different places on the team. My other co-founder, Ian Faison, he's our chief content officer. So he will help out with ideas. And we spent many late nights bouncing around ideas. And generally through dialogue, that's where we'll come up with the best ideas where I'll say, no, 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 we can't do that. He'll say, yeah, we can, here's why. And then we'll just go back and forth until we have something that, resembles uh, a good story.
1: So the co-founder thing is always a super interesting topic. How did you yeah. know he was he was the one and how does he balance you out?
0: Patience and then uh, enough shared history. So I had done the co-founder route in several small businesses before this. For anybody who's familiar with technology, I'd done software as a service subscription for attorneys with a former professor. And it was a product that helped calculate calculate economic damages for attorneys. I kind of stutter with that because I'm like people don't want to hear this. <laughs> which which is completely fine. No, but um, as a former for-
1: lawyer, I'm like that's I mean that's a good idea. It doesn't need <laughs> yeah. to be sexy to make money. It just needs to be good.
0: Yeah, and there were a number of learnings in that business that taught me about co-founders and what to look for and my co-founder in that Dustin was great, but it's very important to do a rigorous analysis because unless you're excited about doing that business for the next you know, five, seven years and working with that person for decades, you probably shouldn't be working with them at all. And you know, a person I really look up to says, if you can't see yourself working with someone for a lifetime, you shouldn't work with them for a day. Is that well, Naval Ravikant? It definitely is. Yeah. So that that's a pretty extreme version of it, but it's a good heuristic to use when vetting co-founders and people like that. So with Ian and Stephanie, they had both been in the trenches working for little to no pay for a very long period of time. And after you have a certain amount of shared history, and you feel really, really comfortable with someone, I think then at that point, I made them both formal equity offers to join the business. And it made sense at that point. But for a while, it was just you know me. And so after they came in and helped and contributed so much, I realized that I can't do it without them. And they're both incredibly talented and smart. I need them on the team.
1: So what's the biggest failure you've had so far while building this or just kind of, I mean, it wouldn't be a failure, like kind of bumps in the road.
0: (laughs) Impatience, definitely impatience. So there are definitely a couple different times where I wanted things to happen faster and I didn't take a step back to appropriately analyze just how fast they were happening. And because I thought I wanted things to happen faster I just made some poor choices in terms of clients and different things like that. And I'm learning those lessons. And unfortunately, I don't think you can learn those lessons without going through the pain of making the wrong choices. So nothing like regrets at all. I'm a big believer that, you know, to paraphrase, big Sean, no mistakes, only lessons. (laughs) And yeah, that's kind of my mindset towards that.
1: So have you considered the idea of taking any venture funding or raising money and going that route?
0: Yeah. So I actually, I did take a small angel round from Founders Fund a year ago. And that was a situation where I was in my second conversation with Jeff Lewis, one of the best investors in the world. Not many people know, but he has five unicorns at this point. So five unicorns in about five years of investing. (laughs) So he's been quietly just dominating the space. And it was my second meeting with him at Founders Fund that he offered to invest and be our lead investor. And at that point, I was a solo non-technical founder, which are all the red flags for for most VCs. And uh, I I said, yes, Founders Fund is one of the best VCs in the world. And that experience of getting to know the team and interacting with so many of those folks and going to some of their events and symposium has been eye-opening and really helped speed along my own learning. So that's been invaluable. But at the same time, I don't view VC as a panacea. I don't view investors as someone who should fix my problems. It's a partner on the journey.
1: So then what's the vision or the next steps?
0: Yeah, I am very interested in the idea of creating stories that last for hundreds or thousands of years, if we are really lucky. And in the much more near-term focus, we're building a network of a hundred podcasts and shows, maybe more, maybe less and we're building a platform and app to have all the shows and content and we're doing some different things there that will make these shows and podcasts much more easy to consume we can put it like that
1: when it comes to podcast distribution i know people people talk all the time about how disparate it is and how hard it is to kind of i mean people funnel i think to itunes but unless you have a big network going in already it's hard to grow what I guess, what are you guys doing to to try to grow your podcast aside from leveraging the mission's large numbers?
0: Sure. This is a really important point you bring up because not many people know, but the most successful shows that they've seen on TV or the longest performing radio shows of all time, they all have had really aggressive and expansive advertising campaigns. That's what has fueled their growth. It's easy to think that everything happens through word of mouth or organically, but you need a lot of advertisement basically for your show or other type of content that promotes it. So we're thinking about the traditional things of repurposing content and turning an interview with a CEO into a written article that's different. But we're also thinking about some non-traditional approaches like, for instance, we operate bestpodcast.com, which is a microsite of curated resources for anybody that's into podcasts. It makes it easy to find and listen to episodes. And we have another site called podcast.ai, which is a bot. And we're doing some interesting things with machine learning to make a personalized recommendation service that is helpful to find the exact episode you need at the exact time you need it. And those are just two examples of how we're thinking about discovery.
1: So I assume you have to be consuming content to be putting out good content and kind of curating your own stuff. Who are you consuming right now?
0: Books. So books that are not appropriately valued in the marketplace, or I feel anyways, that they're not appropriately valued. And I've always found that the best ideas that stand the test of time are usually in expensive books and little known books. So I'm, I don't want to mess up the, the interview, but you can kind of see here's a one stack. And then if you look in the corner there by the picture of Toasty, you can see more books. And then if you go inside our house, this is our um, studio and garage, but the house is just yeah filled with books. So that's the place to go.
1: That's awesome. I was totally separate. I was like, are you in, you're in DC right now, right?
0: No, we're actually in Palo Alto. We moved out here a little over two years ago. So I had been pestering Steph for a year to, you know, maybe consider moving out here. And she got an offer at Google and finally said yes. So we came out here a little over two years ago.
1: Do you feel like it's necessary to be in Palo Alto or close to, let's say Palo Alto, LA or New York for what you do?
0: For what I do, yes, definitely. But for what other businesses might want to do, no. If for me, there was a very strong pull to be here to see things firsthand, I always find that my idea of how something is, whether it's a town or an industry or a notable influencer or really successful investor is very, very different from the actual reality of meeting them and experiencing it firsthand in the space. So for anybody that might be thinking about like, where do I need to be? I would encourage them to just get out and live there for a little bit. We have things like Airbnb now that make that so easy. You can explore living in LA and Seattle and Palo Alto or Silicon Valley. And there are a lot of trade-offs for being here. So rent is obviously incredibly expensive. Buying a home is incredibly expensive. But there are also a lot of upside to where the network effects of being in this area and being able to meet the different people and interact with everyone that we've met. I would say that in a good month here, I do or I'm able to make more connections and more business progress, both personally and professionally than I did in two years in DC easily. So.
1: So the question I ask everybody, and that kind of piggybacks on what you just said is, what do you think the secret to influence is?
0: Being a good person, I I think at the end of the day, and that's something that a lot of people maybe don't want to hear. And whether it's the Kardashians or other people and I'll probably ruffle some feathers or lose <laughs> listeners at that point I don't think it's an accident that people have large followings I don't think it's an accident that people are really successful online there are definitely examples where celebrities or Instagram influencers or youtubers are not good people and they're able to generate an audience but the type of influence that you know we're talking about and obviously that like listeners are going for is something that is going to extend hopefully past their their own life. You know, you want you want people to know who you you were and be sad that you're gone. And I think that's a great goal to aspire to, but you're never going to get there if you view people who do have a lot of influence as lucky or stumbling into that situation. So I'm always a big believer that whenever I feel like jealousy or envious when I'm trying to gain influence or looking at another's influence, it's usually a sign that like I'm not being authentic to myself or I'm kind of like pursuing or the wrong path type thing. So it's a, ramb- a rambling answer, but.
1: No, I think that's a great answer. And I mean, it's just so true. And I, I know so many component pieces go into success. And like I said, before we started, I want to make a point that you had all of these things leading up to your current success and you're still not done. And it's hard not to look around and kind of see what's going on with other people, But it is a mix of talent and all of these experiences. And there is some mix of, you know, in quotes, a luck and a timing. But you need to be prepared to capitalize it when that opportunity arises. If you don't have that talent and that mix, it's not going to happen for you just because you're lucky.
0: Yes, it doesn't. That's for sure. And there are a lot of people who think that, you know, they don't need to go through any gatekeepers. There are always going to be gatekeepers between what you want and, you know, where you're at and where you want to be. So I think that really embracing the idea of just showing up and being ready, like you said, to seize the opportunity, it's that type of mentality is always going to serve you well.
1: And since you are a writer and I do enjoy your writing, I need to ask you because I, you made a good point, And I've heard Ryan Holiday kind of talk about this, that he likes writing because it is something that can stand the test of time. Like even after he's gone, his books will still be around. Yeah. What do you think actually makes for good storytelling? What are the component pieces that you
0: actually need? real life experience. So this isn't a shot against millennials or anything like that, but it is a call to action to have experiences in the real world. And the story I always tell about this is I am a huge Michael Crichton fan. Crichton's own personal story was the best thing for me because I found that I had read all his fiction books, but when I read his nonfiction books, Travels, Mm -hmm. I saw directly how his fiction stories came from direct experience in the real world. And I saw how all of his trips, his travels, when, you know, a gorilla charged him in the forest when he was on an expedition, how that got spun out into Congo. And I saw all of his psychological struggles and not just struggles, but explorations that he talks about a lot in travels, how they map directly to Sphere, another one of his most popular books. And that was eye-opening for me because I saw that fiction writing, a lot of people think that it's just predicated on having a good idea. I don't think so. I think it's predicated on having really interesting life experiences that almost nobody else has had and then processing them and exploring them through writing.
1: That's awesome. I know we got to wrap up, but where can people find out more about you and the mission and and just watch what you're doing?
0: Yeah, the best place is just themission.co. You can subscribe to our daily newsletter if you're interested. We publish it on Monday through Friday and we're launching so many different podcasts over the next couple of months. We have two that are out there now but you can stay tuned there or just Google me.
1: Thank you for listening to Beyond Influential. If you found value in this week's episode, please write and subscribe on iTunes. I'd love to know who you find influential. You can let me know on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Brittany Crystal, K-R-Y-S-T-L-E, or visit my website, BrittanyCrystal.com. Beyond Influential.
0: Hey everyone, this is Chad. We have a special announcement because on August 21st and 22nd, you can get 50% off your Twilio Signal tickets. This is a special one-time only flash sale, 50% off, use the code mission10. Tickets are normally $500. You can get them for $250. 500 bucks is already a cheap price for a conference ticket. I'm just saying, I know it's expensive to some folks, but out here, conferences are typically 1,000 to 1,500 dollars. Twilio signal is a steal at $500. And for two days only on August 21st and 22nd, you can get 50% off using the code mission 10. The conference is October 17th and the 18th in San Francisco. We will be there and we hope to see
1: you.